so encouraged by the presence of all of you here this morning. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder, and it does. I was even excited to see Sue this morning. (laughs) So it's been a while, but I'm very encouraged by the presence of all of you this morning. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Cameron read the first eight verses, but we're actually going to look at the whole chapter. And Sue already threatened that I shouldn't go over, so I'm going to try to keep an eye on the time. Uh, But uh, we're going to get right into it. And just a quick reminder as we consider uh, this unique book, that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes from a viewpoint that is unique in the Bible. The Bible says that God gave Solomon more wisdom than anyone ever had. And being the wisest person in the world must have made Solomon bored with just doing normal, everyday kind of stuff. So he decides to conduct an experiment, evaluating the purpose and meaning of life, but to do it from an under-the-sun perspective, an earthbound perspective. If a naturalist or an atheist were to look for the meaning of life, leaving God and the afterlife out of the equation, what real meaning in life could he or she find? What do all the activities and achievements and events of life amount to? When evaluating from an under-the-sun perspective. And with that in mind, let's consider... Ecclesiastes. 56 years ago, André Francois Refray, I don't know if I'm saying that right, he was a French guy, um, congratulated himself on getting the bargain of, a century, of the century. In 1965, the 47-year-old lawyer entered into a kind of reverse mortgage legal agreement with Jean Calment, in which, and if you know that name, then you know where this is going, but Jean Calment, in which he would pay her the equivalent of $500 a month until she died, at which point her coveted apartment in the south of France would become his. Jean Calment was already 90 years old, so it seemed like a pretty good deal. Even if she lived another four or five years, the 47-year-old Refray would end up getting the sought-after apartment for a fraction of what it was worth. But Jean Calment refused to die. Ten years went by, and she was still going strong. Twenty years went by, and it was at this point, at 110, that one of her doctors said, she began to age. And Andre Francois Refray is now 67 years old. Ten more years went by. Calment is now 120 years old. And finally, death intervenes. Only it wasn't Calment who died. Andre Francois Refray died at the age of 77 years old, having paid over $184,000 
for the apartment that he never got to live in. More than twice what it was worth. Even after he had passed away, his family was legally obligated to keep paying for the apartment until Calment died. She would go on to live to the age of 122 years and 164 days and still holds the Guinness World Record for living the longest life. And of course, that's modern statistics. We know the Bible records some longer lives in ancient history, but according to the Guinness Book of World Records, she lived the longest life, and I think that still holds to this day. Solomon says that life comes in seasons. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to be born and a time to die. We don't control these seasons. They are imposed on us. Andre Francois gambled that 90-year-old Jeanne Calment's time to die would come a lot sooner than it did, and he lost the gamble. The first eight verses of chapter 3 are by far the best-known verses in Ecclesiastes. The birds recorded a hit song using this passage almost word for word. It's also the most preached-on passage in Ecclesiastes. But sermons tend to approach these verses as if the lesson is there's a right time and a wrong time for everything, so choose your timing carefully. Don't tear when it's time to mend. Don't speak when it's time to be silent. Now that can be good advice, but that really isn't what Solomon is talking about here. Remember that as Solomon observes the endless cycle of life under the sun, he says that everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word for meaningless is Heber, and it means a vapor or a mist. Life is fleeting. Life is mysterious. You can't ever quite get your arms around what life is meant to be. But one thing he says, and remember, he's looking at life from an earthbound, under-the-sun perspective. God's out of the equation at this point. Is that there is nothing new under the sun. Things go on and on and on and never change. Generations come and generations go, and nothing really changes. I think sometimes we like to say that, well, it's never been this bad. Have you heard that? Things are worse than they've ever been. Are they? They're bad, mind you. But if you've read the Bible, you've read about some times in human history where it was every bit as bad as it is today. And sometimes we think, you know, well, people are way worse. Same exact kind of people that we had back then. You read of the atrocities that has taken place throughout human history. The veneer changes, but people were exactly the same kind of people. And when I say we, and I'm going to use this throughout the lesson, I'm talking about mankind. I don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush and presume that I know how you feel or think. 
but I'm just saying people in general. But here he speaks of constantly changing seasons. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to love and a time to hate. The journey of life is a cycle of constant change within a system of no change. And it's kind of like another song. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There are seasons of life, and we really don't have control over these seasons. No one chooses a time to weep. It's imposed on us. Seasons come and seasons go, and we have no more control over them than we have control over the four seasons. And that can bring a deep weariness to our souls. And I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that I can't do anything that contributes to my own demise or death. I'm not saying that we have no part in this, but the control, the arrogance that humans have at time, and we've seen it on display during this pandemic, the arrogance of thinking that we're going to stop a virus by putting a piece of cloth on our face or take, I mean, some of the stuff that that we've seen throughout this just shows the complete arrogance of man to think that we can truly control the outcome. I'm not saying we don't have any part of it and we don't have any responsibility in that. I'm not saying that at all. But who is in control of all of it, of the seasons? Verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Solomon lists 14 pairs of opposites that seem to cancel each other out. You plant today, but the day will come when it will be uprooted. You laugh today, but the day will come when you weep. You mend, but it will be torn. What do we gain from our work? If what I do will only be undone, why do it? What good are my feelings today if I know that in a matter of time, my feelings will swing to the opposite end of life's spectrum. I think that this weariness in this endless cycle is reflected in how people tend to complain about life or the answers that they give. Have you ever said to somebody, how's it going today? Same old, same old, same stuff. And I'm cleaning this up somewhat. Same stuff, different day. Life's hard and then you die and there's bumper stickers, you know, that get even more explicit about this sort of uh, monotonous idea of life and what's the point of it. And again, we're talking about this reflected in a absence of God. What is the meaning without God in the equation? We hear that endless cyclical sameness in how people, including us, because I've heard it among you and myself, complain about the weather. We're like meteorological Goldilocks. We complain about it being too cold. We complain about it being too hot. But even when it's just right, we complain that it won't stay perfect forever. 
say, what a beautiful day, or it doesn't get much better than this. And I guarantee you that half the time people will say something like, yeah, but it's supposed to rain this weekend, or yeah, but we're going to pay for it next week. It's like we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, for the good to be canceled out by something bad, for the positive to be canceled out by something negative. And from a purely under-the-sun perspective, it will. And that's a heavy burden. But thankfully, Solomon quickly lifts our gaze above the sun and gives us hope and strength. Verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Yes, life comes in seasons. And we can't control those seasons, but God can, and He does. And God has a way of making every season beautiful in its time. There is beauty in every season. And of course, there's beauty and purpose in being born and planting and healing and laughing and dancing and mending. But God also infuses beauty and purpose in mourning and weeping and tearing and uprooting and even dying. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Life comes in seasons. Those seasons are played out in time. But God, who transcends time, weaves every season into a beautiful tapestry that brings glory to his name and meaning to our lives if we allow him to be in the equation if we will trust him. Verse 11 goes on to say something really amazing about how we as human beings are wired. God has set eternity in our hearts. The first eight verses talk about the stages and seasons that our lives all go through, but all this takes place within the context of time. Verse 1 opens with, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heaven. But God has placed deep within our hearts a yearning, a vision of life outside of the constraints of time. A life that doesn't have the bookends of being born and dying. We have never seen anything beyond this brief life with our eyes, but God has set eternity in our hearts. We know that there is more than this life. Even though everything that we witness, all of the, the disease and the death and the decay that we witness, we have this hunch that we were meant for something beyond this. I enjoy watching birds Um, you know those progressive commercials Haley just sent me one the other night she thinks it's so funny 
that uh, I think the progressive commercial, it goes something like we, uh, when you get into a new home, we can't save you from becoming your parents. Well, Alicia and I are bird watchers. My mom was a bird watcher. Her mom was a bird watcher. And I can't believe we're bird watchers now. I never thought I would be a bird watcher. (laughs) But they're fun. They're fun to watch. And we have a backyard where they just, it's, it's wonderful to watch them. And I'd never appreciated robins in the past, but I'm fascinated by robins. They're not the most beautiful bird. They make beautiful sounds. Uh, some people think they're annoying, but I, I think they're beautiful. And so I'm kind of dangerous with my phone because if I want to find out any information, that's the danger of having Google right at your fingertips. You can just look it up. And so I, I look up information about different things. And so I was curious about robins and robins are a migratory bird. Not all of them, but many times when they fly south, They'll fly for 3,000 miles. Their lifespan is two years, but many times they'll come back to the exact same location after flying all that way. And a lot of times they'll come to the same exact nest. So the nest that they built above the window of my guest room, and I see them feeding their young a thousand times a day, that could be a friend that I saw last year. They have this built-in GPS that enables them to return to the same exact place that they nested the year before. Even more amazing is the migratory instincts of the monarch butterfly. Now, you may be aware of this. I asked Alicia if she was aware of this, and she was. Of course she was. And every year, they don't just fly south. They fly to the same tree groves in Mexico year after year. That alone would be pretty incredible, but it's even more mind-boggling when you realize that butterflies who fly there have never been there before. Monarchs fly up from Mexico. Thankfully, we have open borders. (laughs) Begin to lay eggs in March and April. their lifespan as a butterfly is only about two to six weeks. So by the time you get to September and October, when monarch butterflies fly south, it's the fourth generation. And this fourth generation has a different lifespan than the first three generations, a much different lifespan. The fourth generation, rather than having two to six week lifespan, These guys get to live six to eight months, which enables them to fly to a place in Mexico they have never been to and then fly back north in the early spring. They have a built-in compass that knows exactly where to go. It's amazing. God has placed that compass inside humans. We can ignore that compass. We can suppress that compass. But it's there. As one commentator put it, the consciousness of God is part of our nature. 
the suppression of that consciousness is part of our sin. The fact is that deep inside we know that there's something more than our short lifespan here on earth. Life is a vapor. As Solomon observes, but we long for there to be more because God has set eternity in our hearts. While trapped here in time and the uncertain mist of life, like the caterpillar, we hope for something more glorious. That hope is the hope of the resurrection where our dead bodies are raised in newness of life. Not like these old, decaying, weak bodies, but transformed into something very different and powerful. They have to be. They have to be different and powerful to be able to stand before God without being destroyed. Think about that. And able to live eternally without getting old and frail. Dad recently has made comments about he can't believe how quickly you know his body is weakening and he's become just this feeble old man the way he describes it. And I remind him you're going to have an incorruptible body. And of course he says, I hope it looks better than this one. <laughs> Until that day, we recognize with Solomon that while our compass points to eternity, we can't understand what God has done or is doing. And again, I I don't want to suggest that God's put this like the butterfly where we, half of the butterflies don't make it to their destination. Even though that's where they're supposed to end up, They don't all end there. And I don't want to suggest that God is drawing us against our will to this destination. I don't think you think that that's what I'm suggesting. But many times we can't see what God's doing. We can't figure out the whys of the seasons we go through. We can't always see and appreciate what God is doing because we're not patient. The Bible promises us that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. But a lot of times, we aren't able to identify the good. God makes all things beautiful in its time, which means that some things don't look beautiful or fruitful or beneficial before their time. Isn't that true? A few years ago, I'm a channel surfer. I, I don't do it as much anymore, but when I was younger, I, I know it drove the kids crazy, and I could never stay on a channel for a long period of time. And usually it was sports. I would go back and forth in between games, and it drove them nuts. But I was channel surfing one time, and I came across this show, and it turned out to be the 700 Club. I'm not a regular watcher of the 700 Club, but there was... A stage, and I saw it from the beginning. There was a stage with a big black canvas and spotlights pointing on the canvas, and then there were sheets and paints all around, and then music started playing. 
And this guy came on the stage, this young guy, and he had two paintbrushes in his hands, and he started wildly doing these brush strokes on the canvas. Wildly, I say, it was graceful in the way he was doing this. But I couldn't make out anything. I mean, it didn't even look good. I thought, oh, this is one of those abstract artists like Hunter Biden, who who is just going to splatter a bunch of paint on this canvas and call it art. And I thought, so I prejudged what he did. And two minutes went by, and I couldn't make out what he was doing. There was all these wild brushstrokes, and then he flipped the canvas. And I was blown away. If anybody has seen this, his name is David Garibaldi, and he is so talented. But he, he was on the 700 Club, so it was religious. It was actually a painting of a portrait of his interpretation of what Jesus might have looked like. And it was spectacular. It was the most spectacular thing that I've ever seen. And then he finished the painting, both hands, and splattering paint on there and everything. And it was so impressive, the the final result. In my eyes, it was a masterpiece, the final product. But early on, when there were just those wild brush strokes and spattered paint on there and the painting was upside down, I couldn't see what he was doing until he flipped it, flipped it over. When a farmer plants a field, it just looks like upturned dirt for a while. It doesn't look like anything good is happening until it's time. That's why faith is so important to the Christian. We trust in God's sovereignty even when we can't understand what he is doing. We place our faith in Christ and believe that we are forgiven of our sins even though at times we may not feel forgiven. Hard times come. Things happen that we couldn't imagine happening. And sometimes it feels like God has forgotten us or abandoned us or maybe just doesn't really care about us. But faith gives us a perspective that isn't limited to an under-the-sun perspective. Faith gives us eyes that see above and beyond the sun to see the glory and goodness and faithfulness of our God at work. The Christian has a compass that is leading us to our eternal home, even though we've never been there. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. Many times in Ecclesiastes, and specifically in chapter 5, which we're not going to look at, 
Solomon talks about the gift of being happy and enjoying the little things of life. And the connection that I want to make this morning is that having eternity in our hearts doesn't rob us of the ability to really enjoy life here under the sun. It actually makes it possible to enjoy it more. We can and should enjoy the little pleasures of life all the more because we know that they are gifts from God. And we aren't trying to derive the meaning of life from those things or those pleasures. But they are gifts. Knowing that everything that our sovereign God does lasts forever, we live with confidence that the seasons of this life may change, but the good that God does in us and through us during all those seasons will never change. And again, I'm not talking about some miraculous thing that is bestowed upon us. How does He do that? It's through His Word. There is an eternal good being hammered out in the temporary joys and sorrows, pleasures and hardships of life. Living with this awareness of God, His greatness and glory and power and holiness and faithfulness is called, as verse 12 says, living in the fear of the Lord. For believers, the fear of the Lord isn't terror, but it's awe and reverence. It's healthy to live knowing that everything we do is done in the sight of God. And one day, we will answer to God for it. And this brings us to the closing thoughts of chapter 3. Verse 16, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. <clears throat> we live in an incredibly broken and evil world. People twist and distort justice for their own wicked ends. We see innocent people who are abused and guilty people are promoted. And you see daily, and you know, this is the problem with the 24-hour news cycle and social media. It's in your face all the time. And we see people getting arrested for going to a school board meeting with a piece of, without wearing a piece of cloth on their face. But we see others looting and killing, and they're set free. We're not going to pursue that, but we're going to pursue these other who aren't following our little rules that we've set. But God will eventually judge everyone with a righteous judgment. One day we will stand before God, and the Bible says no one will get away with evil. If, if you like watching crime drama like I do, I like watching the real, reality stuff like Dateline and First 48 and those things, and you see the victims of crimes, and you see the perpetrators who seemingly get away with it at times. And the victims will inevitably say, 
so-and-so didn't get justice. We didn't get justice. They got away with it. Well, they got away with it temporarily. Nobody truly gets away with it. Everybody will be held accountable. And righteous judgment will be administered. The last few verses are a little hard to understand. Let's pick up in verse 18. I also said to myself, As for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Really, Solomon? That's... That's what you concluded. Chuck Swindoll, and I'm not trying to knock Chuck Swindoll. He's written some great character studies on Moses and Joseph, and I've benefited greatly from reading some of his character studies. But Chuck Swindoll thinks that Solomon's questioning of what happens after we die is the musing of a miserable man. That Solomon's cynicism and weariness caught up to him, and in a moment of weakness, he questions if there's any difference between what happens between a person and an animal when we breathe our final breath. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that after looking Godward for a bit, Solomon is repositioning his perspective to the earthbound. We really do have this in common when we come to our last breath. What happens to humans and animals isn't that different physiologically. And from this side of death, we can't observe what happens to the soul. Again, this is just an earthbound perspective that he's taking on. Who knows if the human soul rises upward? You can't see it. And if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. What we do know is that the cycle of seasons coming and going under the sun comes to an end, whether man or beast. That's an earthbound perspective. How can we know unless God reveals it to us, right? And isn't Solomon's point here to approach it from an earthbound, under-the-sun perspective? He does lift our gaze up into heaven with God in the equation, but then he repositions himself as from this earthbound perspective. I think that's what's going on here. Remember, the Old Testament revelation of the afterlife is not anywhere near as developed as it is in the New Testament, and for good reason. But there are glimpses. And Solomon already gives us a glimpse saying that everyone will be brought before God in judgment. What Solomon questions when he says, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Christians can readily answer with confidence based on what God has revealed, right? 
But I can't come up with that on my own. I can't just observe it. God had to reveal it to me. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10 Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. For the Christian, when we breathe our last breath and we leave this body and we appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due us, I think the most important thing to hear for us to realize this morning is what is due all of us is for Jesus to to say, depart from me and cast us away from him forever. That's what I deserve and that's what we all deserve. How can we survive a judgment where the only passing grade is absolute sinlessness? Well, one way is for you to live an absolutely sinless life from the moment you were born to the day you die. And that's perfect and sinless by God's standard. No sin, no selfishness, perfect obedience, everything he commands. Has anyone done that? Romans makes it pretty clear that no one's done that. One has. The only other way is through Christ. On the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved so that everyone who really and truly places their trust and faith in him will be saved. And again, this isn't once some watered-down version of some verbal acknowledgement of who he is. It involves our life and our commitment. And the only way that we can put our faith, faith comes by hearing, we have to look to what he has revealed on the matter. And that's coming to him on his terms. What he says, not what I surmise or say. It's not on my terms. I come to him on my terms. You will never be saved by being good enough. You'll never be saved by going to church, by giving to the poor, or being better than most other people, as if God graded on a curve. Only by trusting in Jesus... Only by believing in Jesus, only by giving your life completely to Jesus. And again, we talked about what that means. It's not just some, yeah, I reckon it's so, or no, I don't guess so. It puts a lie on what the scriptures teaches about belief and faith. It involves our very lives. We live our lives in a little bubble of now. What's past, what happened yesterday is behind us. We'll never get it back. Tomorrow will never be. 
Our bubble just moves forward. And the only time we have to act is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. If there is is anyone here this morning who needs to respond to the Lord's invitation, we want to help you in any way that we can. And we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.